We have a great podcast about education. If you want to get learned about getting smart, this is the podcast for you. Continuing our lovely series, we've had a lot of great topics spanning the last 2.22 centuries. I stole it from Emma, or the description, which is Emma's doing. And it's been a really fun time for us to learn it as well. Yes, we think next week is our last segment. We just have healthcare left, last topic. Yeah. It's almost spring. It hasn't quite sprung yet, I would say. It almost sprang a couple times, but it has not quite sprung. And today we got snow. Bad, thick, slushy snow. Should have shoveled. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow, but I didn't do it today. I didn't leave the house today. Let her out, so you got a little bit of fresh air. I didn't leave the house even when I let her out. <laughs> but I mean, like, some air from the outdoors oh. slapped you right in the face. Yeah, true. That counts. All right. In this podcast, you're going to find out how pretty much nobody knew anything about anything in the past. Luckily, you're alive in a time where people know things. At least a small amount of things. A couple things. You might know one thing if you're lucky. <laughs> After this, maybe it'll be two. I'm Emma. I'm Ian. And this is our podcast, Nobody's Talking About Everything, Solving Nothing. If we get lucky, we might solve something. Literacy in the New England states in 1800 was 80% for men and 50% for women. I don't know what I expected, but I'm happy with that. Yeah. Except I wish women were higher, but 80% seems pretty damn good. In where? What city? In the New England states. So in 1800, that was like pretty much all of them. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And then literacy in the South was well below 50%, but the exact numbers are unknown. Not as good. Yeah. Public schools were scarce, and the census was not started until 1902, 100 years later. Wow. So public literacy records were not taken. So therefore, they didn't have any like centralized database for, you know, documents like that. What links the census with literacy rates? Because everyone had to fill out the census. So if you aren't literate, they know that. Oh, oh, because somebody else fills it out for you. Yeah. That makes sense. At the time, they defined literacy as whether or not they could sign their name on a document because wills and deeds were often the only records we have of common people back then. Illiterate people would sign those documents with a mark instead of their name. Wow. So this is a very, very, very low bar. That's a super low bar. Okay, I'm not as impressed anymore. Yeah. Because, yeah, we don't have any other documents of them, like, actually writing letters or anything. So we don't know how well they could actually write. All we know is that they could sign their name. (laughs) And 20% of men couldn't sign their name. Yikes. So they just put, like, a smiley face or some shit? (laughs) They would just do, like, a scribble that they did every time. So it signified their mark. Better than nothing, I guess. Yeah, that's crazy. 50% of women could not sign their name in 1800. Yikes. Yikes. (laughs) Beyond that literacy thing, I tried to find more info about schooling in the 1800s, but there really was no info that I could find. Basically what they said is that nobody went to school unless you're from an upper class family, and then that was done through tutoring in the home. So nobody went, pretty much. Nobody went. Wow. And in the North, there was obviously more public schools than in the South. But even if you had access to one, a lot of schools you had to pay for. And then even if it was free, they still didn't send you to it. Your parents didn't because they wanted you to work and they just didn't see any value in it because there weren't any jobs really that required an education of any type, (laughs) even literacy. Mostly just farmer. Yeah. So it was literally just a waste of time. Everyone that they've ever known was a farmer, so why not assume that everyone that you know will keep being a farmer? Yeah. And then by 1910, that's when I started getting some information on public school attendance and things like that. So by 1910, 72% of children were attending school. Finally. But that's also so recently. Yeah. Public school attendance became mandatory in 1918, which guaranteed an elementary school education to everyone. So before that, there was no rules on having to go to school or getting a right to go to school. I wonder if that was hard to pass. I'm sure there was a lot of pushback. Probably. Because a huge percentage of Americans were farmers at that point. Mm -hmm. And died farmers and never used any literacy skills. It's so hard to imagine. Yeah, that's crazy. You'd think that people would have had some literacy skills to be able to keep track of the fact that they have all this shit going on. 
to keep track of their business records and stuff. Yeah, bills, how many bushels yeah. and how much, you know, how many packs. Who ripped you off with, you know, bushels to packs? <laughs> In 1954, schools were legally desegregated, though we obviously know that today, to a large degree, segregation still exists. So we've, we've yet to see physical desegregation as far as like actually having white kids and black kids in one school together. But we've also not seen desegregation as far as like financially. Financially is the big one. Yeah. Because at the extremes, the physical segregation still exists where you have high schools that are 99% one race, mm-hmm. even in cities that have a broad mix of races. Yes. If you go to like St. Louis, you can go to a high school that's 90% white and vice versa. Even though the city is extremely balanced of races. Mm-hmm. Financially is where problems really begin to show themselves because there becomes a huge discrepancy in quality of schools just depending on where you grew up. Yeah. Even in the same city because school districts are completely outlined and get different money based on the property values of the homes in that area. Yeah, I think it's totally crazy that that exists. That's so wrong. It's even that way with different services like police and hospitals. You know, in this country, we have a guarantee that everyone can get police service and emergency service in the hospital. But yet, if you're in a poor area, you have to wait way, way, way longer in the emergency room to get help and for cops too. Yeah, I think that equality is the least we can do, the very least. At the very least, equality shouldn't be such a preposterous idea. Yeah, a lot of conservative-minded people argue that we should be striving for equality, not equity, because equity is providing the same outcome for everyone, and equality is providing the same, like, ingoing. Level playing field versus personalized support to achieve the same outcome. Yeah. Because a level playing field assumes that everybody has the same ability and background and knowledge. Mm-hmm. whereas that's obviously not the case. It's ridiculous to assume that that's the case. While I totally agree with that, the level playing field is the least we can do. Yes, exactly. That, that's a baseline of obviously we all can agree that we should do that. So therefore, every single kid should get the same funding for their school. But we don't even have that. It's like $10,000 a year. The government sends $10,000 a year for every fucking kid in the school, in any school that they're at, and that's it. And then you can take your donations on top of it and your wealthy parents are donating shit. Fine. But those poor schools should be getting that same baseline so that they can provide a barely scraping by education, just like we got. Yeah. And then we can start to talk about, you know, giving the extra things that they deserve as like reparations. But geez, I think we all have agreed that equality is what we need. (laughs) That's it written into our constitution. They find ways to bend it. Yeah, equality would basically be like if all the kids were playing a game of basketball and then like the disabled kid who can't even walk without a wheelchair is just thrown out there and he's crawling around. And then equity would be like, okay, well, this kid has different ability, so we need to give him a wheelchair, obviously, (laughs) so that he can actually compete. Mm -hmm. And then you could obviously say that it's, quote, not fair because now he has something that's bettering his ability artificially. Who cares? He's still he's still worse than everyone. Like, it's the least we can do. <sighs> You'd think. You'd really think. Speaking of the devil, well, I shouldn't put it that way. That sounds bad. <laughs> because in 1975, we started national funding for children with disabilities to, to attend school. I feel like this podcast has shifted my perception of time. I used to hear these dates and always think that's so long ago. But now maybe it's because I'm rapidly approaching age 30, but I realize how quick everything is and a hundred years is absolutely nothing. Yeah. And these things happen yesterday. Mm -hmm. I think the reason why we have trouble with this type of stuff as a society is because the way that 1975 is remembered in the cultural zeitgeist is very, very rosy. And it's told from the perspective of one type of person. And this to me is illustrated when I listen to Justin Long's podcast and one of his questions that he asks is, if you could time travel, would you rather go to the past or the future? 
And that's a hugely privileged question to be able to even consider because Kel Penn was on there, the guy from Harold and Kumar, the Indian guy. I love him so much. And he immediately pointed out that he would 100% go to the future because he has to. Because if he goes back to 1975 or, God forbid, anywhere farther back, his life is going to be way worse than it is now. And it's funny because if I'm asked that question, you know, before I've taken on this perspective, let's say I want to go back to 1900. Because I am ever curious about even this city at 1900 and, you know, all the changes and all the carriages and opera house and whatever it is. And if I'm asked that question, I can vividly imagine myself living in this house, living in those dresses with my husband here, taking my carriage to the opera house and all of that. And I can really get there mentally. And it sounds good the way I imagine it. But imagine if you're a disabled person or a homosexual or a black person, you can't imagine literally you going back. Because if you go back, you might die. And it's not a fun fantasy to think about. And it's not even realistic. Because let's say I was black living in this house in this city, you know, as I very well could be. If I go back, I'm not living in this house. You weren't allowed to purchase this house. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to. I was never given an opportunity to be able to earn that amount of money. I am not allowed to go to the opera house. (laughs) There's no way I'm going to be able to commission a carriage for myself to be transported there. No part of it is happening. Mm -hmm. Also, by the way, if in that first fantasy, like you said, everything was pretty accurate, but we live way too close to the opera house to take the carriage there. But come on, it would be so quintessential to take the carriage. It would be so hoity-toity. What we would have to do is take our carriage to somebody else's house and then carriage pool. Yeah, that would be the responsible thing to do. That would be the responsible thing to do. Because horses create a lot of dung, so you know, you got the methane. Plus it just works out nicely because then for at least a couple hours, our horses are not dunging up our stables, they're at our friend's stables. (laughs) Yeah, so I think it's important that when we think of the past, we think about it accurately and we learn about it accurately because a lot of white people don't truly understand what those periods of time were like for other people. And even remembering that if you go back to those time periods, even if you're in a position where you are a straight white male, where you would be able to act in society as you wish, your friends are all racist, homophobic, misogynistic assholes. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was normal and accepted and And if you don't encourage that, then you're hiding something and that's dangerous and blah, blah, blah. So it's just a convoluted time that was remembered, like Emma said, often through rose-colored lenses. Mm -hmm. And they really even had glasses back then, let alone rose-colored ones. So again, there's another fallacy. 1800 till now, fallacies. (laughs) Okay, so 1975, we finally got funding for children with disabilities to attend school. Previous to this change, there were 1.75 million disabled kids who were excluded from the public school system entirely. Wow. Yeah. And then there were another 3 million disabled kids who had been attending public school, but were essentially being shoved along the regular ed route without any help to actually address their needs. You know, they're just like given a passing grade. Just struggle on through. Yeah. Children who were considered, and I quote, crippled, feeble-minded, or emotionally disturbed were excluded from school and sent to institutions. The laws of the time actually used those words as categorizations. Wow. The word handicap dates back to the medieval times because disabled people often sat on street corners with their, quote, cap in hand because there was no public safety net. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. Handicap. What? Yeah, isn't that crazy? Nobody knows that. I know. (laughs) There's no way that if you asked 100 people that, that anybody would know that. I know, it's crazy. Holy shit. That's, I was about to say fun fact, but that's not a fun fact. Yeah, I learned about these different laws that helped the disabled people get their rights. And the first iteration of this had the word handicap in the title. And then like 20 years later, they changed the law to be more inclusive and they changed the name of it too. Because they said handicapped implied that they weren't independent or whatever. Mm. And when I read that, I was like, why? You know, like people still use that word. It's considered a handicapped space for parking still. 
I would think that that's an okay word to use. I've never heard that that's bad. I don't want to use it anymore. And then so, yeah, I Googled like origins of handicap and that's what I found. So that's interesting. Market, I bet in five years, there's a push to stop using that word. Yeah. You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) Also, another tip is just don't use the word feeble-minded. I don't think I've ever used that phrase. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we were watching Shark Tank the other night and Barbara was talking about her crippled brother. And that just seemed weird to me that she would use that word. I mean, she's older, but... Yeah, she's ancient. Yeah, we're lucky she didn't say something even worse. (laughs) That was actually like the third take that she... So many times when Kevin and Barbara are on, they need to reshoot it because they just said something just super insensitive. Like wanting to get his beak wet? Yeah, that's a bad one. Every single time Kevin says that he wants to get his beak wet, which is so like weirdly perverted. But remember, I need to get my beak wet. (laughs) I was trying to forget that. And Barbara is also definitely, she's not obviously blatantly racist, but there's been so many times where somebody gives a presentation. Who's black and she says that they're articulate. No, not even that, but it'll be somebody who has a good presentation. And it it seems more like it's Middle Eastern or Asian people. And she could just say like, oh, I don't want to be a part of this. You know, this doesn't fit my portfolio. I'm out. But she'll just like, I just don't think this is, I don't see the appeal. I don't know why anybody would want this. Yeah. I don't think that this is a good product. I don't think that you have what it takes. It's like, based on what? This four minute presentation? Yeah. And also maybe Barbara isn't their demographic. (laughs) Maybe there's other Asian people out there that buy shit. It's like, Barbara, did you know that there are 2 billion people that use this product every day? (laughs) I just don't see the market for it. So then in 2001, we finally got No Child Left Behind. Thank you, George W. Bush. George W. That was awesome. I remember that, actually. I remember seeing that on the news as a kid. And, you know, obviously I asked what it was. My parents told me. And I was so shocked. I was like, there's kids that don't go to school up until now. (laughs) that just seemed like such a foreign thing to me aren't we living in modern society yeah and the rule even till today the federal law of no child left behind still says that you can drop out at 16 which is crazy it's crazy i think our time will be remembered as being insanely progressive technologically but i think that we are surprisingly behind the times Mm mm-hmm with policies that accurately reflect how humanity should be. Mm -hmm. And I think that some of the ideals are getting widely accepted and gaining steam, but... We haven't put them into place. They are not put into place. And when they are put into place, they are done more often by private sector efforts than public sector efforts, Mm -hmm. which is pathetic. Yeah. Just despicable. Because then it leaves out certain parts of the country that aren't progressive, You know, because we here could say, and we're not even in a very progressive part of the country, but like we could say that, oh, like racism really isn't that bad here or whatever. So we don't really need new laws. But federally, we need them because there's other states that don't have protections where the culture is even harsher and the people there are just left to their own devices. And I would even say we need them everywhere too, because I think in places like this, the reason that it's so segregated is because very few people feel truly welcome in our community. Yeah. I think that a lot of small towns have a very like a closed community feel. Even when we moved into the area, it was hard to get into. It's just scary to meet new people. Yeah. Because you just assume it's this big group. And if you are blatantly different than that group, whether it's on the inside, outside or whatever, it's going to be hard to yeah. be a part of it. And it's not just different. It's also you're being discriminated against. Yes. Not just different. It's yeah. treated different. Yeah. Today, America ranks below average in math and science among industrialized countries, and we are spending more than average to achieve this. Good job. Out of 21 industrialized countries, we are ranked 19 in math and 16 in science. Like you said, because Americans overall are spending more on average to achieve lesser. Mm -hmm. And that's because they're spending shitloads of money to go from 98 to 99 which like national average wise doesn't change a thing and personally doesn't change a thing to those kids really. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the bad schools who with that same amount of money would go from an average of a 70 to an 80. Yeah. That's a fucking huge difference. 
Also, it's partially because we have a lot of privatized parts within our public systems. Yeah. Like, you know, if you look at even like a public prison, which the majority of our prisons are privately owned, but even a public prison, like they hire out every single part of it. So you're paying all those premiums on everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas in other countries, they have a lot of regulations for caps on how much you can charge for certain things that are for public use. That's cool. 21% of American adults today read below a fifth grade level. (laughs) Solid. (laughs) And 19% of high school graduates are functionally illiterate, which means they can't read well enough to manage daily living and perform tasks required by many jobs. I can't tell if that's low or high. 19%, that seems very high. That seems very high, but that second thing about the tasks... One in five, if I look at like my graduating class, I think that like, I'm surprised that half those people had got their shit together. Yeah, but not being able to do tasks at your job is one thing, but Mm. having it be because of literacy is a totally different thing because you literally can't read what you're supposed to be doing. Okay. That's a crazy high number then. Yeah. Read one more time. 21% of American adults read below a fifth grade level, which is like Ramona and Beasley. (laughs) (laughs) And then 19% of high school graduates are functionally illiterate, which means they can't read well enough to manage daily living, so like paying bills and things like that, and perform tasks required by many jobs. Yeah, I guess when you first said that definition, I didn't grasp it fully. Yeah. That's bad. Mm -hmm. That's bad. Well, we should maybe uh, put on like a bill paying seminar. (laughs) I wish that we could reach the people that we wanted to reach with this podcast. That's something that I found very apparent in my college studies and short time working in public health, that so many cities have all the resources that anybody needs, Mm -hmm. but it's so hard to put them all in one place. That's easy to find. That's why we need this stuff to be in high schools. And it's so hard to, because in the end, people are going to need to know where it is and then get access to it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, cities have tried at every school and soup kitchen and homeless shelter put resources, but then sometimes the resources are just brochures and pamphlets. And then you need to take a bus ride across town to city hall to get something done. Number one, you need to know how to read that. Yes. Which apparently 19% mm-hmm. of people don't know how to do that. One thing that places are doing is they're trying to get like a local 411 type thing mm-hmm. where they can just get a card to somebody where it just has some sort of picture or it says, you know, food, water, whatever yeah. uh, symbols to show certain things. Then you know, most people have some way to call 411 and then they speak two or three languages that are most common in that area. And then you can say, you know, what do you need and how they can help you get access to it. Mm-hmm. But that takes live staffing time, man hours. And so it's hard to connect the people to the resources, even when they are in within a mile apart. I think that it's crazy that it's allowed to have the army go in and set up a table at a high school to sign up 18 year olds to go to war. But they don't allow you to register to vote as a senior. If every single senior had an opportunity to go register to vote, They said, okay, calling all seniors, you have a half hour, come down to the cafeteria, you can register to vote if you want to. Instead of the seniors having to go do it themselves. Yeah. Who, if you've never seen your parents vote and you have no idea where it is and you just obviously don't care because you have had no education on the importance of it, what impact you're going to be making, you have no education on which candidates believe what, how are those people expected to go out and register themselves or know when to register where and even that they have to register. Yeah, exactly. That's why certain states, even better, every single house gets a mail-in ballot as soon as you're 18 and you're automatically registered to vote. Yeah, you don't need to register. That That's just a crazy thing. Why do you have to register? Because it's a suppression tactic yeah. that's still from the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Trying to suppress the black vote. Mm-hmm. If black people had the same voter turnout as white people, Democrats would win every single election. And that goes for so much. If women had the same turnout as men, if low income had the same turnout as high income, if young mm-hmm. had the same turnout as old. Educated. If educated had the same. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Well. But that statistic is almost totally irrelevant because all the rest of those statistics line up perfectly with the educated statistic. Yeah. 
income and educated are nearly identical statistics, unfortunately. And again, unfortunately, race too. Mm -hmm. Problems exist, people. Don't act like they're not there. If only white, uncollege educated men voted in the last election, Trump would have won every state except two. Disgusting. Terrifying. Yeah. And if you do women, it's like the exact opposite. If you did women, if you did the exact opposite. All educated people, regardless of gender or race. Or if you just look at all black women, Joe Biden won, once again, 49 or 50 states. And then I'm wondering, how does college fit into this? Because if people aren't even going to elementary school, who the hell is going to college at this time? Well, Harvard was America's oldest and first higher education institute, which is crazy. I didn't, wow. know. I didn't know that. I mean, I could have guessed that it's the longest lasting, but I didn't know it was truly the first. I think I knew that. No. When would you guess it was established? 1780. It's probably early. 1810. 1636. Oh! Really <laughs> as shit. Yeah. So for the first three years of Harvard, it was called New College. <laughs> N-E-W or N-E-U? No, N-E-W. N-E-W, yep. It was mainly a school to educate clergy. Disgusting. (laughs) After three years, the college was renamed to Harvard in honor of Reverend John Harvard, who upon his death had left half his fortune and his entire personal library to the institution. I don't know why a reverend has a fortune, but... Boy, it would take a lot more than that to change the name of Harvard now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Harvard added law to its curriculum in 1816. That's surprising. That's what I was guessing. I was only six years off on that one. Oh, you were thinking of the law. The law. But that's crazy. They operated for almost 200 years without law. Something that they're totally known for now. They operated for three years with a logic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I definitely found that pattern was that all those colleges that were around at that time, like Yale and Princeton and stuff, were mainly for religious studies. But then again, everything was for religious studies. Yeah. (laughs) Up until 100 years ago. In 1910, Harvard officially adopted crimson as the school color. This originated in the mid-1800s when two students on the rowing team provided crimson scarves to everyone on the team to enable the crowd to pick them out more easily. The idea of school colors was in its infancy then, and the school did not officially vote on this designation until more than 50 years later. Wow. Crimson is a great color. It's a very great color. Around World War II, the American Medical Association began lobbying for medical schools to require some college science, if not a total college degree, where they were going to require a degree to get into medical school. That's a very good recommendation. Really? Doesn't it seem like it? Well, previous to this time, people had learned like a trade, you know? So if you want to learn how to be a doctor, you go an apprenticeship under doctors and you go and learn specifically about medical school. You don't go and learn biology. You go and learn specific things about how to be a doctor. That's how education had been for thousands of years. If you want to go be a blacksmith, you learn how to blacksmith. You don't go and take geography. Yeah, but I feel like now with how they have it set up, it's that you learn the basics before you learn the advanced portion. Like... When you learn how to drive, you learn it on paper, then you get in the car. You don't just get in the car. Mm -hmm. And that's, to me, that's what the change says, is that we require you to learn how to drive on paper and then come to medical school and we'll teach you how to drive. I don't know. It'd be interesting to hear what somebody in medical school would say. Not only that, but medical school in 1900. But like Matt Schuler has his bachelor's degree in like biology, I think, right? Or chemistry. Those are the two most common ones for pre-med. And I wonder how much you use that information in medical school. I think not too much, depending on the degree. Each thing is different, but I know that your degree can be in anything. You just need to have the right credits in the right classes. You can have Mm -hmm. a law degree. You could have a finance degree. Yeah, but people choose those specific degrees because they look better for admission. That used to be the thing, but I think now it's not always the same. I think that they see the same shit all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Right around that time, law schools also did the same thing, where they required a bachelor degree. Look at how they spell bachelor. It's like a French. Yeah, bachelorette or something like that. Bachelorette? (laughs) (laughs) When it's the whole pomp and circumstance or whatever for the march, Mm -hmm. they always use all those long official titles. Bachelorette. Bachelorette of arts. 
Yikes. A target of science. I hate pomp. I can take it or leave it. And seminaries started requiring one year of college. Seminaries started requiring at least one year of being a creepy weirdo. <laughs> In 1940, yearly average tuition was $2,000, which is inflation adjusted to today's dollars. And at the time, a brand new 1940s Pontiac car cost $7,000. Jesus. Yeah. In 1979, a college degree increased earnings by 13% over a high school diploma. Now it's what, like 4%? No, you didn't understand. So, like, if a high school graduate makes $10,000 a year, a person with a college degree would make only 13% more. Just barely more. Mm, yes. Whereas now, it's 75% more. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Hmm. So, today, people are very, very, very incentivized to get a college degree, and a lot of people argue that it's a requirement. I would agree with that. Yeah. It's a requirement of almost every single white collar job. And I think most parents aspire that their children become white collar workers. So it is a requirement. Yeah, for sure. College enrollment increased 37% from 2000 to 2010. And in the same period, the cost of an education rose 42%. That's the exact decade it became a requirement. Yep. Yeah. And again... The conservative mindset is that college shouldn't be publicly funded because, you know, it's your choice to go to college and it's not a requirement and it's your choice what type of job you want. But again, this whole story that I'm telling should give some perspective into how school was not required on any degree until 1918. A hundred years ago, there was no school required for anybody. Wow. Most people did not go to any school. And especially the more poor you were. And so all of a sudden, middle school became a requirement to, you know, be a clerk. And then by the 40s, a high school diploma was required in order to be a secretary. And on and on it goes. And if those things become a requirement, then it's incumbent upon us to pay for it mm -hmm. or subsidize it. There comes public universities. That's why they're good. Yeah, but they're still crazy expensive. The concept is good. Execution is flawed and poor. Did you know that 1.5% of American adults right now have a master's degree or higher? Great job, Karen. You are the 1%. Yeah, my mom. My mom's in the 1.5% of educated people. Big brainers. That's surprisingly low to me. Aaron, great job. Yep, Ian's sister, another honorable mention. Okay, we have one grim fact here to end it off. <laughs> Classic our podcast. Got to end on a grim note. The average recent college graduate, so the age of a recent college graduate is like 24, super young. That person has an average of four credit cards. Oh, oh, oh no. <laughs> oh no. That's bad. We only have one each, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know why I need more. I don't think I've had four in my life. Well, the reason why they get them is because they need money. <laughs> they don't have money to pay for things. I'm happy that you didn't have a credit card in college. It would have been bad. I'm kind of surprised I didn't because I was pretty stupid. Mm -hmm. I, when I was 19, got a prepaid credit card so that I could build my credit because I had a plan to buy a house. And I had to pay $500 to get it. Not pay, but like, yeah, deposit. And I had to use it like once every six months or something. And I swear I checked it like twice a month just to make sure that like there was nothing on it or I wasn't like getting any charges or whatever. And then once you and I started dating, we got credit cards together and I canceled it and got my $500 back. And we've had really good credit since. Yeah, like four years ago, we just got like a fuck ton of Southwest miles because they had some credit card deals. Mm -hmm. And we got it because we were able to put our rent on our credit card, which earned us tons of miles. Mm -hmm. and... and we never had to pay for it. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had free rent. And now I track all of our spending down to the cent. So we've really come full circle. We really know what we spend and what we don't spend money on. I'm all too aware of what I'm right now not spending money on. Pickleball paddle? Right now, pickleball paddle is what I'm most not spending money on. <laughs> <laughs> we just have like a line item for everything, house, utility, and then on the bottom is just pickleball paddle, allotted zero dollars. <laughs> <laughs>
If anybody wants to buy me a birthday present, which is coming up soon, I'm looking for the Carbon One 16mm pickleball paddle. How much does it cost? $180. Yeah, that's not going to be in the budget for quite a while. I know, that's why I'm asking for our listeners. <laughs> yeah, you know, instead of donating to the Ukrainian Relief Fund... No, do that too. They can't afford both. Tough decisions got to be made. <laughs> I'm not telling them where to decide. I'm just giving them options. <laughs> Harvard enrolls 17,000 students in regular enrollment and another 30,000 students in non-degree courses, which is like just learning for the sake of learning. Hmm, that's a lot. Yeah. It's small, though, for the most prestigious college. Very true. We've thought about taking non-degree courses at our college here. We will someday. Yeah. Black men were first allowed into Harvard in 1850. They made up like less than 1% of the population there until like the 1950s. <laughs> Took them over 200 years to let that happen. Mm-hmm. The Harvard Graduate School of Education was the first to admit women in 1920, the first of Harvard's programs. Harvard Medical School accepted its first female enrollee in 1945. Its first women computer science enrollee in 2006. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Women made up 35% of college undergraduates in 1900. Well, I would have guessed. Yeah. Especially because Harvard didn't allow any women until 1920. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously these women made like way less money than the, their male counterparts with degrees. Just because of the type of degrees that women are funneled into. Like you said, education yeah. was the first one. Nursing. But actually this statistic of how many women went to college actually got worse by the 50s. Oh, wow. Got better and then it got worse because there was like a lull in feminism. Now it's at all time highs, right? Yeah. Women are 60% of college graduates. Damn. Yeah. But they still make way less. Damn. I think it was like a female college graduate will make like 2.4 million in their career and a male graduate will make like 3.2 million. Wow. Until the 90s, college has long been a place for women to find a respectable man. And most commonly, college-educated women never worked outside the home. Dumb. Yeah. That's sad. And even then, most of those men were not respectable. No. (laughs) Not to women, at least. (laughs) Of the 45 presidents we've had, nine did not go to college. Which actually is surprisingly low to me. I would have thought it would have been higher. Do you want to know who they are? Washington. Yep. Fillmore. Washington, Jackson, Van Buren, Zachary Taylor, Millard Fillmore, (laughs) Abraham Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, Grover Cleveland, and Harry Truman. So only one in the last hundred years. I was two for two. (laughs) Well, if you consider Donald Trump's questionable degree, then that'd be ten. I'm sure all the rest of them had questionable degrees. (laughs) Some more questionable than others. Yeah. In 1800, 1% of the U.S. population went to college. Sounds boring. Mm Mm-hmm. Super low. What do you think it was in 1900? 12%. 5%. Wow. Yeah, so it really didn't grow much at all. In the 1800s, it just wasn't a thing. If you lived in Menominee, Michigan, you have never met a single person that's ever went to college. In 1900. Um, I wouldn't say that. 5%. You've at least heard of somebody for sure. Oh, well, heard not of somebody, met yeah. somebody. But there's a certain part of this country where that applies. True. Very true. Graduation rates in 1900 were below 30% of attendees and was oftentimes never the goal to begin with. Yeah, it's just about finding a respectable mate. Yeah, for the women, it was about finding a man and staying out of trouble. And for the men, it was about finding connections. And also finding trouble. (laughs) That's how fraternities got started. (laughs) Roger Greger, who is a distinguished professor of education at Pennsylvania State University said, there was nothing to be done with a bachelor's degree that could not also be done without one. What year? 1800s. Well, if one in a hundred Americans get one. Yeah. But this is talking even amongst the upper class. So at that point, it was it wouldn't qualify you for anything, but it could be a distinguisher. Yeah, it would uh, solidify relationships and get you to be able to meet people. But nobody would look at that and think, okay, he's more qualified now. Yeah. Which is very interesting. In my experience with college, totally agree. 
I'm not, I wasn't more qualified than ever before. Mm-hmm. I think that general education is important. It's true. But the unfortunate thing about general education is that because our culture doesn't value it, college students don't value it. So they learn almost nothing. I think part of the reason why it's unvalued is because the curriculum is not chosen by the general public. Mm-hmm. I have so many memories of when people learn things and they say, well, why don't they teach this in school? Mostly around finance and how the market works. Because that doesn't help us become better employees, which is the goal of school. That's why school was invented. School's invented to make sure kids are good for jobs. Yeah. And it does a good job of that. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean we're good citizens. Mm-hmm. Us learning about finance in school would probably be counterintuitive to the country's mission. Country's mission is? Make money. Spend. Yeah. In both 1800 and 1900, the cost of college was considerably less than it is today adjusted for inflation. The reason middle-class families did not send their children was because pay in factories was good, and there were very, very few jobs that could be attained with a degree, specifically. It was not a financially beneficial transaction. Also, opportunities for loans were non-existent. Why would you want a silly job like doctor or lawyer when you can get a good job like line worker? Yeah, and also, at that point, there was more of a line between upper and lower class. There wasn't as much of a middle class as there is now. So... Well, no, we're describing the middle class. Well, yeah, but the middle class right now is brought up to think that they can be a doctor. That's correct. And it wasn't the case back then. Like, my grandpa in no way would have ever thought that he could be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Like, that wasn't even something that could be strived for. It really took a special situation and a very, very special person in order to pursue something like that. I think that would combine with, I think the jobs of upper class have changed from back then to today. Mm-hmm. I would say doctor and lawyer used to be an upper class job and now it's a... Business and tech industry and... Yeah. Yeah. True upper classes, successful entrepreneurs, business owners, CEOs. Mm-hmm. But it's been like that for over a hundred years. True. It's just that a hundred years ago, the ultra wealthy weren't so ultra wealthy that doctors and lawyers couldn't even like get close to them. Yeah, the billionaires of the past were very, very rich. There just wasn't as many of them. Correct. Yeah. Just like today, the line between the top 1% and the top 0.1% is extreme. Mm -hmm. But back in the day, the line between 1% and 30% was not anywhere near extreme as it is today. Mm -hmm. Because the richest person ever was John D. Rockefeller, inflation adjusted. And he had 50% more money than Elon Musk. He had about a billion dollars and adjust that for inflation, that would be about $340 billion, whereas right now Elon Musk's net worth as of about a month ago was about $223 billion. So like Emma said, Elon Musk would need 50% more money than what he already has right now to be as rich as Rockefeller was inflation adjusted. It's very interesting to look at like what type of businesses they owned at the time. Because they literally owned lumber, (laughs) railways, things like that. At the time, John Rockefeller's net worth was 2% of the U.S. GDP, which if you would use that number, 2% of current GDP, he would have around 400 or more billion dollars. Yeah. So he was just so much more wealthy than the rest of the country, essentially. Which is like saying he has double the net worth of Jeff Bezos. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, if anyone knows how rich Jeff Bezos is, rich. should make you throw up. Even the discrepancy of wealth within the top 10 billionaires is enormous. It's huge. The number 10 makes way less than the top two. It's disgusting. We can't even comprehend. Yeah, and, you know, we say that college is generally affordable for middle class families. But, you know, isn't it crazy to think about you being an 18-year-old and going to college with $20 in your wallet and no financial help from your parents, but yet you're able to get a degree because of debt. Because of debt. And debt hasn't existed except for in the last, like, 75 years. And I had a little more than 20 bucks in my wallet, but once I bought the bongos the first week... Yeah, I was going to say you had, like, 200 then you had bongos and $20. Then I had $20. <laughs> <sighs> And I use those bongos to play a lot of concerts for free. (laughs) (laughs) College sports started around 1900. The beginning of the end. 
Uh, college sports have gotten blown out of proportion so vastly. Back then it was just field hockey and croquet. And now it's 100,000 people in a stadium screaming while coaches are the highest paid public figure in the state yeah. making millions of dollars. How does a coach make more than a teacher? That's horrible. Coaches make 10 times what the professors make. Yeah. The coach sometimes makes more than what the governor makes in that state. And they're a public employee. That's correct. I think that it's good to push yourself in sports because it can teach you a lot of lessons about yourself and, you know, obviously benefits for teamwork on a team and, you know, many different things like that, forming a routine for yourself. But I ultimately think that sports are for fun and for those reasons that I just said, Mm -hmm. not for winning, not for making money. There was at least a good development recently. I think that now college athletes can make money somehow from sponsorships because previously it was illegal. But meanwhile, the teams could have deals with sponsorships and Mm -hmm. make tons of money. So at least now the players can get part of it. Yeah, but... It's still wrong. It's it's a weird step forward. I do get that it's unfair that the player is making nothing except for getting a free college degree, which is worth $100,000. But... I think the solution is just that the college shouldn't be making so much money off it. Not that we should pay the players more. It's definitely a conundrum. They should set limits on how much time a player can devote to it. Or I should say the amount of time that a team can require that you devote to it. Because they're not getting enough time to actually just be teenagers and go to school. Unfortunately, that is counterintuitive to the success of the team. Yeah. And the reason why they care about the success of the team so much is because they can make so much money off it. Yeah. But if there was regulation put into place, then that would dry up. Unfortunately, the NCAA is made up of a bunch of representatives from all the colleges who benefit from, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like the senators voting to pay themselves less or to work more. Well, interestingly, senators don't make very much money. It's like senators voting to ban themselves from owning stocks. It's like senators banning lobbying. Yeah. That's what it is. That's like saying senators want to give themselves term limits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mitch McConnell probably shouldn't be in the Senate 35 years later. I think he's been there for like 40,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of talk about maybe Americans are getting stupider because the internet and people are using slang and emojis. But research doesn't indicate that Americans are losing their vocabulary. Americans use about 20,000 words in their active vocabulary, which are words that they have the ability to use. So words that they know the definition of and that they can, in theory, use. They also have 40,000 words in their passive vocabulary, which are words that they recognize and have at least an idea of what they mean, but they don't remember them well enough to use them themselves. So they'd recognize it in a book and understand it, but they'd never actually speak the word or write the word themselves. And there's approximately 18,000 emojis people have to use. (laughs) I think that's largely a thing that old people say. Oh, the youth these days just aren't as smart and they're not as eloquent. Yeah, they say that about everything though. True. And even though we have 20,000 words in the active vocabulary, 1,000 of those words make up 90% of our everyday writing. And writing is more eloquent than speaking normally, as we've learned with this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Many of those words are definitely words that just have to be said, like and and I and shit like that, because there's not many different variations of he or she or they. Yeah, but if you're saying five ands in one sentence. (laughs) There lies the problem. (laughs) People definitely just don't try. There's not much incentive for people to try. Yeah. Very few people value that skill. People don't value it in their jobs or in their personal lives. Mm-hmm. I wish we just knew everyone's number. Because if the average is 20,000 words, that means a lot of motherfuckers walking around here are sitting at like eight. <laughs> I took a little like online quiz that's supposed to tell you what your approximate vocabulary is. And I got 20,000. So I don't know. That's weird. If you're average, then... You're like 10,000? No, I was going to say if you're average, because I'm exceedingly high, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm saying if you're average, then the average person that we're walking around this town knows 7,000 words yeah. or 3,000 words. I think my passive vocabulary is good, which comes from reading, because I've learned so many words from reading. There's all those different steps of learning a word where you read it and don't really know what it means and you look it up and it makes sense in that sentence, but then you see it again sometime and you recognize it, but you don't know what it means. You're like, oh, I've seen that before. Isn't that like something It's not good, but what's it actually mean? 
oh yeah, and then hopefully eventually you know it well enough to speak it. But that rarely happens. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to get a word into your lexicon verbally. It's even hard, as we've learned with this podcast, just to speak eloquently without a bunch of pauses in the sentence or being able to form a complete sentence that a person would actually write is very hard to do verbally on a podcast or just in conversation. I think on this podcast, you've also learned that it's hard to be a podcaster with ADD. Yes. (laughs) And what I've learned is that it's hard to be an editor of a person who has ADD. (laughs) Or a spouse. Yeah, it's really hard to string words together once you have a disorder of your attention. Mm -hmm. And I do wish ADD and ADHD had a different name called AD, which is called attention disorder, because that would make so much more sense. Is that a movement at all? I'm going to start it, probably. (laughs) And we were talking earlier, and Emma said people don't know all the different side effects of attention disorders, such as depression and anxiety and... Weight loss. Weight loss and all sorts of weird shit. As well as people sometimes flippantly talk about attention disorders, saying, oh, squirrel, or whatever sort of goofy thing they're trying to make fun of. But we're seeing progress in disorders, without a doubt, how people converse about them. Because in our parents' day, people called people with autism and Down syndrome, to their face, retards. Yeah. Not good. It's really bad. And then when we were in school, we called our friends retards. I never did. That's more of a man thing, unfortunately. I never heard that amongst girls. Well, girls are kind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, men are always trying to assert their dominance amongst each other. When we were, yeah, so our growing up, we called our friends that... And it's just so interesting to see the progression of how people talk about things as time goes on. Because back in the day, which was the worst of all, people just didn't talk about it. But then people talked about it meanly and discriminated and... Hate speech. Lots of hate speech. Names. Very, very bad. Discrimination. Prejudice. And now we're beginning to see, this day and age, 2022, it is very uncommon to hear somebody use the word retard in a derogatory manner or at all. I feel like it's pretty much been eliminated from the common zeitgeist. As far as officially, yeah, but I feel like colloquially people still use it. Definitely, that's true. But but they're not referring to disabled people. They're referring to their friend. Yeah. It's still bad. But. Still bad. But that's seen a lot of progress. We're definitely seeing progress on how people talk about other mental disorders, such as depression and anxiety. And hopefully as time goes on, we begin to see progress on other more niche disorders like my attention disorder. And Tourette's. Things. Tourette's, OCD. Yeah. It's common to say, like, I feel depressed today, or I'm so OCD about, like, cleaning my kitchen or something. OCD is probably the worst out of all of the ones right now, Mm -hmm. because that is just such a different disorder when people think. Isn't OCD kind of overlap with ADD? Like, there's an obsessive component to what you have, isn't there? Um, perhaps, but I'm not sure on that one. And I feel like there's a compulsive part to it too, because you're not truly thinking through things. Yeah, you could say the disorders have overlap, because if somebody is watching somebody with OCD, like their attention isn't on anything besides the thing that they're thinking about. Yeah. And they can't relax till that happens. So I'm sure there's some overlap. But yeah, OCD is not a perfectionist organizational disorder. It's not at all that. And people treat it like it. So as progress continues, that's we're going to hopefully see everyone know more about all the different things out there. And I'm sure there's ones that we don't know about and we have yet to learn. There's progress to be made for everybody, including me. I think that one way that you display obsession is through pickleball. I'm obsessed. Mm-hmm. Before that, it was golf. No, that was a hobby. You were obsessed with it, except for it's more expensive. So you couldn't like as easily play it. And you were also obsessed with PD. So, and hopefully people can keep researching things. It's baffling sometimes when people hear things in the news and they don't do any research, especially considering most people, our initial reaction to something new is negative and most people, it's very hard to change your first impression. So when people hear on the news something like, which is not true, but man wins women's swimming event, it's like, not what happened. And if that's all you know about it, then you read the headline for face value and you think like, that is wrong. Like a man can't just come in and just win the women's swimming. And we all know that that's wrong. But that's obviously not what happened. So if that's all you know about it, that is your logical conclusion that you draw. 
because you aren't informed about what trans people are and things like that. But it seems so straightforward of thinking when you have something that you're not aware of to just Google, what is it like to be a trans person? But that's part of it is that they have a false sense of knowledge. That is a very common sense of knowledge. False. Mm -hmm. People are still saying the word midget and they don't know what they're supposed to say. They genuinely do not know. People definitely have a hard time just admitting that they don't know, which is not hard. It's okay to not know. Just ask. Yeah. What's the right thing to say? You don't have to ask a person or say something stupid in the middle of a public event. Just Google it. Mm -hmm. And I think people our parents' age, they don't know what to say instead of Indian. Like maybe part of their mind goes off saying like, is this the right thing to say? But they don't know the right thing to say. So then they just say what they're used to saying, which is Indian or Eskimo or something like that. But instead it should be Indigenous Americans or Inuit. Yeah. Yeah, I think that as far as like a person that is living in the U.S. now that is of that heritage, you would say Indigenous American. Yeah. Or you'd say Ojibwa or whatever. Or a common thing to say is just Native too. And then if you're talking about it from a historical standpoint, like what happened multiple centuries ago, then you would say Aboriginal people or Indigenous people. Because they're not Americans. The only reason why they became Americans is because we forced them to. We called this land America. And we didn't give them rights until like 70 years ago. Like 100 or 200 years after we declared rights for all. (laughs) 200 years after we established the land of the free, we actually gave them rights. Finally. Yoy. Progress. For the record, you're supposed to say little people, not midget. Person, little people. Yeah. Little guy? Nope, not that. (laughs) (laughs) Because that would be assuming someone's gender. And also, don't say that. It's offensive for more than that reason, obviously. And if you're wondering what to say about a trans person, you say the word trans, and then you say the gender that they're presenting as. And if they don't present as a specific gender, and that's like an intentional thing, then you use the pronoun they. Also, if you're ever confused, just don't refer to someone's gender. You don't have to. Yeah. Or, yeah, like you said, whatever they're presenting as, that's their gender. So it's either woman or trans woman. But if you're referring directly to the person, of course, yeah, then you're obviously just using their gender as far as their pronouns and stuff. But commonly what I'm hearing people say, because not many people know trans people, they are talking about a trans person to another cis person. And that's when the trouble often happens because people are obviously way more polite to one's face. Mm -hmm. And I hear people say things like, so it was a man, but then he uh, became a woman. And then, so now he has breasts and, but he says he's a woman. You say trans woman. That's how you say it. (laughs) And even then on top of that, there's so many flawed viewpoints inside there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because when you tell me that it's a trans woman, there are so many things that I know. You don't need to tell me what their genitalia is. You don't need to tell me what they used to be, what they are, what they look like, anything like that, because the label accounts for those things. Well, most of those things, yeah. But because you genitalia don't, doesn't define... You don't need to have genitalia yeah. to be a yeah, woman. Exactly. So it's not even anyone's business. It's not relevant. Yeah. It's like, I mean, that's just like saying... Yeah, you know, he's a firefighter. He was born with a dick, still has a dick. <laughs> okay, didn't ask, thanks. And people often comment on, like, oh, well, they got plastic surgery, or they, now they're wearing a wig, or different shit like that. Like, you don't, you wouldn't say that about just a seemingly regular person that's wearing a wig. Bingo. You would always give them the benefit of the doubt on, well, they maybe don't want me exposing the fact that they're wearing a wig or drawing attention to it. Because that's likely going to be a sensitive subject. Because who wants to get jiggy with Wiggy? (laughs) I would. To all our Wiggy listeners out there, we support you. Most of my takeaways from this week were just being baffled at how recent how many of the educational developments are. Which is a pretty general theme that's been happening this entire series is that I can't believe how much shit has only happened in the last 200 years. Mm -hmm. Because apparently the last 200 years holds 99% of human history in it. Yeah. And that's baffling. Yuval Harari thinks the reason that is is because we invented debt very recently. Powerful tool. You can't invest in the future if you don't have money. And kings in the past used to just sit on their money 
instead of loan it out and make money on it. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Just conceptually, we take zero for granted and then negative numbers is essentially what debt is. And that's an, a concept that has not existed for that long. Mm-hmm. Well, basically how he explains it in the book is that, I mean, there was concepts of giving money away to people for causes because, you know, the government would supply certain services to their citizens and things like that. And they would fund certain projects like building a temple, you know, in their honor and things like that. But there was never any concept of getting that money back in any way. Of temporary giving money. Yeah. Because if society isn't growing, if the economy isn't growing, then you are never going to give the money back. So you're investing in a future that is always has to be better. That's how our stock market works now. A company can be doing good, but unless it's getting even better, it won't make any money in the stocks. It's all about that growth. You're trying to meet earnings or exceed earnings. Which is very interesting because if you had a small business and let's say it was a restaurant and you have like a 10% margin, every year you just take the 10% and you live on it and it's good. It's it's a good living and the business is performing well. But in the case of like a public company, that stock would be zero. Like that would be like flatlining. Public or not, because the system is set up that way, companies kind of have to grow if they want to keep pace with the times. Because if a family business... Well, they could just raise the prices. Yeah. That are in line with inflation. But they would still have to raise prices enough to increase their living. Because back in the day, if a family business made 5000 bucks, that was more than enough to live on. Mm-hmm. Well, if they rose prices linearly and still made 5000 bucks with higher prices today, yeah, obviously they couldn't live on that. So having gotten a college degree, would you say that you wish that the training was more straightforward or would you think that having more general knowledge would have been better? It needs to be altered in some way. It was too expensive to have more gen eds. At the same time, I wanted more gen eds. Mm -hmm. So I think it either needs to be more specialized or more general and accessible and cheaper. Well, the way a lot of European countries do it is that after you graduate high school, you go to two years of what is essentially high school again. But it's just like general learning, like you'd learn like psychology and like world history and things like that. But it's it's obviously more in depth than in high school. They have a lot better system over there. In Germany, as long as you're just going to school for anything and getting good enough grades, they give you enough money to live on Mm -hmm. to keep going to school forever you could never work and just always go to school and just keep learning but if you're smart enough and don't care about growing your wealth and buying a house and things like that you could totally be a student for life nice eventually they might kick you out of the dorms for being kind of a weird creep i would have loved to taken the bullshit that i didn't need to learn because the gen eds would be way better if they didn't have certain requirements or at least had more lenient requirements and you were able to just do more what interested you because i feel like a lot of the gen eds i didn't get anything out of it when i took the asian history course because i wasn't interested in that at the time as much as other subjects i didn't apply myself or absorb it as much why did you take it then I needed a history course and it fit well with my schedule, which was only taking class on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So you didn't really care about getting the best class, you cared about getting the easiest for your schedule. Correct. Yeah. I barely passed that shit. The only thing I wish we would have said more, or at least said once, was one room schoolhouse. Both my grandparents went to a one room schoolhouse. When they first made schools, they did not get fancy. They used to have to haul wood in for the wood burning fireplace before school. Hauling wood in before school is maybe the worst way to get up in February in Wisconsin ever. Well, yeah, first they had to walk to school, obviously, in the cold. Yeah, they didn't do a whole lot. It was just four walls, a door, a chimney, and a blackboard. And a ruler for spanking. And a ruler with no markings on it. It was not for measuring. <laughs> and obviously there was a shit house out back too. Where's the bathroom? Right next to the wood pile. <laughs> I'm really hoping that Culver's gets some vegan ice cream soon. <sighs> We're trying to quit sugar, which I just remembered. We had some success with it last week, and then we got off the wagon. We went four days. Four days, and then we got off the one-room school wagon. Mm-hmm. I am on day two right now. I think I'm back off. There's two different versions of us quitting something. One of them is saying we're quitting it, 
and the other is getting rid of everything in the house. We did the on the same day for veganism, and we never found it difficult. We just did it. But it's a lot easier, I think, when there's like a greater cause to it. Because sugar has all the negative health benefits of an omnivorous diet, probably even more. But it doesn't have an environmental or moral cause associated with it. That does make it extra difficult. But I'm trying to kind of take on this made-up challenge where I think that sugar might be poisoning my brain. And I'm trying to overcome the evil sugar. Another best podcast ever. Really? Yep. About to be outdid by next week's podcast? It's going to be crazy good. Next week we are doing healthcare. And you might think, that's kind of not that cool. Well, guess what? Everything you've ever taken for granted in healthcare is really cool. And when we say healthcare, we don't mean like the modern way of talking about it. We mean medical attention in general. Tune in next week for a history of ibuprofen. Just kidding. Nothing is about that. But now I'm already seeing some of the next week's stuff, and it's really good. Thank you.